Up next on Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the mythical man-month problem, keeping communication in check, Windows 7, and web scaling. From IT Conversations on the Conversations Network. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. This is Jeff. Uh, well, who else would it be? I called Jeff. Why are you eating lunch? It's like f- 4 p.m. there. I'm sorry. I noticed that um, in the little chat window in Skype, they have it throwing up. I'll send you that. Bleh. Yeah. But they don't have eating. You'd wonder if eventually there'd be some standardization on emoticons, right? Like every device would have a standard set of these things. It's probably an IEEE standard. Yeah. I'm certainly a candidate for it anyway. Well, this is podcast 63063. Mm-hmm. Do you get the problem where you plug in your iPhone and it says um, the iPhone what, that you what, plugged in? What is in going on over there? Be recognized, please. Is there like in. a car full of clowns going in circles over <laughs> plug there? Plug again. I mean, what is going on? This is going to be a great podcast. You have not been the same since Fogbug 7 was released. There was something in that product that, that is not right. Well, Fogbook 7 is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another product here that the interns uh, have been building along with three um, experienced software developers from the Fog Creek team as their mentors um, mm-hmm. and also co- co-programmers, basically. So it's like a, a programming team of nine. Wow, that's a big team. Plus two testers and two program managers. So it's Holy really cow. more like 13 people on that team, yeah, which is the largest team we have ever fielded. And, uh, and, and, and you know how they always say, like, you can't schedule software. Uh, if you try to just double the number of people and have the amount of time that you spend doing things, it's like trying to get nine pregnant women to make one baby in one month. Yes. You know, that, that, that funny little expression. Absolutely. Well, turns out that with software, that's not completely true. <laughs> <laughs> Are you debunking <laughs> another important myth on our podcast? Is that what you're doing, Joel? Uh, I might just have to because, you know, the, uh, the limitation that we face with summer interns is they only got 10 weeks. Yeah. And even that is kind of a stretch because there's a couple of stupid colleges um, that give people their vacation later than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and some not-so-stupid college, colleges. So actually, in, in our case, it's uh, University of Chicago and Stanford. Both let people out really late and... Um, Meanwhile, the other people have to go back to school kind of early. and So you only wind up with 10 usable weeks during the summer uh, to build a product uh, if you're going to try to build it with interns. Right. Uh, so we just, um, you know, we split up the work, and we had very, very detailed specs, and we figured out what everybody's going to do in advance. And we're not going to really finish it this summer, but we will have a feature complete beta um, by the end of the summer. Cool. So throwing a bunch of people. So there's, there's my challenge. Well, okay. I, I'm probably shouldn't be speaking about having large teams because my whole 
philosophy is predicated on having really small teams as I can possibly get away with yeah. and keeping them small. But I guess as long as you have you know, work for everybody to do and they're not stepping on each other. I mean, that was always the big problem, you know, the mythical man month problem was that people just start to interfere with each other. They're mm-hmm. blocking each other. Their communication breakdowns. There's all these reasons yep. that that stuff doesn't scale. So I guess if you have some kind of parallelizable right. workflow where people aren't stepping in on each other and they all have stuff to do and they can just work somewhat independently, I, I guess you're right. That could, really, that could work. Well, the real argument that Mythical Man Month makes is actually a little bit weaker than the argument that everybody remembers. Everybody remembers, oh, you can't just put a lot of people on a team. But uh, what the Mythical Man Month actually says is a slightly narrower claim. It says if a project is late, adding more people makes it later. I see. So it's really saying something about like people coming up to speed and all the communication it takes to get everybody onto the same page and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, and they're just they're sort of they're ways of addressing um, the the problem of making a large team more effective than a small team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, you know, but sometimes you just have so much work to do that there's just no way that you can ever get it done with a small team, and and you really have no choice. And so. At that point, your goal becomes uh, mitigating the, the the large number of communication paths you've created. So the mythical man month problem allegedly comes from the fact that if you have n people on the team, then you have you know of uh, an order order of n squared, so n squared over two minus one communications paths. If everybody's going to communicate with everybody, and so that goes up, uh, it, you know. As a, as a function of n squared, it's order of n squared. And so if you have a team with uh, 10 people, there are, you know, around, what, 50 communications paths? Mm-hmm. And if you have a team of uh, uh, half that many people, five people, there are only, you know, 12 communication paths. Getting that wrong, it's 10, right? I thought you were supposed to square it. Somebody so you're squaring math. it, dividing it in half. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what's five. going on over there. Well, because... Uh, if you and I have to communicate, if you actually make a square, you and I don't actually have to communicate. Uh, that's only one communication path. Like, well, you let me put this. Let me put this in terms that our audience can understand. Thank there you. was this show that was on for a long, long time called Love Lines, mm-hmm. which is kind of one of those weirder radio shows, and it had Adam Carolla for a long time. And oh yeah, and he's Dr. got a great podcast now. Yes, he does. It's very, very good. And uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky. Mm-hmm. And one of the recurring themes, there are a lot of recurring themes, being a call-in show about sex and love. There are a lot of crazy, wacky things that happened on it. And I went through a period when I was up late, and I, I, you know, I'm always up late, and I would listen to this show, and I listened to it for a period of weeks. And there was, there was a theme, which was that anytime someone would call in and say, we're considering having a three-way relationship, there was, there, <laughs> there was always a theme of like, you could almost hear the groaning in the background right. from Dr. Drew Pinsky. And this is a guy who's, you know, he's kind of a medical professional. And he, he's just seen this pattern over and over that once you add a third person to yeah. a romantic relationship, the odds of it breaking apart are, like, very, very high. Well, because you now have three relationships to maintain instead of one. And that's just adding one person. Right. That's the whole communication thing. Yeah. Now, granted, it's a romantic relationship. So these are harder to maintain than, say, a work relationship. Uh, but I think the principle still applies. It's just stark how you know, deeply adding just that one additional link to a romantic relationship like sure. destabilizes it yeah. radically. Yeah, and you, you, you and your wife just had a baby recently, so you probably experienced that firsthand. <laughs> Yes. Well, the baby's not a romantic relationship. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Of yeah, that, I missed that. that of that kind. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 certainly the principle is there. Right. 
um, uh, so, so that's the mythical man month uh, theory. And then the, the, the way uh, that we address this on software teams, there's really sort of two approaches to addressing this. Number one is through the use of a person whose title is program manager who sees their job as communicating with everybody. And so you really you try to go from more of a star communication topology than an everybody talks to everybody communication topology. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a certain amount of uh, um, broadcast messages that everybody subscribes to. We do that through check-ins. So anytime somebody commits code into the version control system, everybody reads the commit, or they read the comment at least, and then they read the code if they care. And it's just sort of a way of everybody announcing what they're working on without all having to talk to one another. That helps a lot. But the other thing that I think is actually kind of interesting is that um, whereas the architects, and by architect I mean people who design office space, tend to believe that open space fosters open communication and open communication is very important and modern high-tech companies like software companies should be all about massive amounts of communication between everybody and as much communication as possible and communication is awesome. When you actually get out into the field of building very complex things with a very large team of people working on very detailed stuff, you discover that what you really want to do is minimize communication. It's like you're (laughs) always looking for ways that if somebody doesn't need to know something, they don't find out because all that is is noise to that person. And so you're always, you're constantly looking for ways of reducing the number of people that are involved in things. So for example, every time you have a meeting with 10 people, well, that's 10 people that all got to sit around and waste time hearing about things that they may or may not care about. And if you can reduce that, instead of being a meeting of all 10 people, just make it, you know, maybe the program manager goes to three people and talks to them individually, then you've wasted dramatically less time. Uh, Or, for example, um, the difference between the the general approach of Basecamp. uh, In Basecamp, people are just constantly getting notified of everything. And that's sort of the default behavior is to tell everybody on that other team something or tell everybody on the team something. And uh, the default behavior of fog bugs is that it's extremely difficult to do anything other than assign something to one person at a time. So, um, you know, our, my philosophy of, of, of software teams is like everybody finding out about everything is politically very astute and makes people very, feel very happy and gets everybody involved, but they don't need to be involved. And the whole, your whole goal is to try to trim down the amount of involvement that everybody has to just the areas where they need to be involved so that you have any kind of hope of moving forward on a large team with a lot of people. Wasn't that analogous to the, the push communication versus the pull communication? In other words, need to know implies that, you know, rather than sending an email and interrupt, mm-hmm. essentially an, you know, a broadcast interrupt out to people, let the people find the information that they need. So really right. then, I guess what you're struggling with is making sure that everybody who needs to know something has a way of finding it that doesn't involve interrupt-based communication. Sure. So if you're not sending out all these emails about what's going on, there's like some central website or something where they can go, hey, I'm working on X, now I need to know why. Right. So I'm going to go to our website, Z, and click on it. No, oh, now I have the information I need, and I'm unblocked. Yep. Um, so there's not all this interrupt-driven communication going on. And certainly email, I think, is a great example of that. And I've, I, I think a lot of people who have a public internet persona eventually kind of give up on email. <laughs> exactly. It's, yep. Uh, it's really challenging. I think, I think the, everybody's getting ready to give up on email. It's not just the people with the public internet persona. Yeah, yeah. I'm already, I already have all my public internet persona email going to a separate folder, which I can only really, you know, I can read, but that's about it. But you said you replied all, you guys should all email Joel, because he said he replies to every real human being email that he gets. 
Um, Which I, I do not I make that, that promise. <laughs> I do not. I absolutely do not reply to anybody who emails me through my website. Um, wh- what I do is I reply to people that that s- send email to my work address, and and nine out of ten times, it, it, it's just a customer with a customer type question, and there are people that get paid here to reply and say, "Joel asked me to get back to you on such and such a matter." I see. Usually, because they can, because if somebody's emailing me and they're asking about when their Fogwood license expires and how much it would cost to renew it, well, those um, are paying customers, so that's a sure. different thing. Yeah, they all get, they all get quick replies. Um, but yeah, pe- people that just email my address on the website, I, I do actually read it all, um, and I reply to us some of it. Every once in a while, I'll go in there, especially if I have a long flight. I'll go in there and I'll answer a hundred emails or something. Mm-hmm. It also sort of depends. People aren't aren't so good at sending email that can be replied to. Oh God! Don't even get me started. Like here, let's. This will be fun. Here, here's some oh. classes of email that I can't respond to whatsoever. The first is an extremely lengthy story that should have been a blog post <laughs> about some experience that you had in the software development oh, field. The wall of that was text. Amusing. Yeah, the wall of text. That's my favorite. It's like you should open it, and you're just like, I regret even. Clicking <laughs> this thing. Well, no. Sometimes the story is great and it's funny, and I read it, and I'm like, Hey, great story. Um. Okay, bye. <laughs> sort of disproportional. Right. The guy spent an hour composing what should have been, you know, a, a, a short story or something. Uh, so I can't do anything about that. Number two, when somebody says, "Hey, um, I'm just writing to ask you if I asked you a question, would you be able to answer it?" They're so asking, like, they're asking if they can question. ask you a question, or asking if they can ask you a favor, or asking if they can. And then you don't want to say yes because they're gonna then ask you're going to get another email. Then you're get, you're yes. saying yes, please send me more email. Sure, go ahead. Sure, go ahead. Send me your question, and then they send you a question. And it's like you know, would would you Wall fund text. my startup, or 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 should I divorce my wife? It's something you can't answer. There's just no hope, right? Um, so that's a, that's the second category. The third category is the one where you spend a lot of time trying to decipher what the hell they're even talking about because they're giving you – they're sort of not very good communicators, not very good writers, and there's this wink-wink. They're like, you know, the problem with a yeah, ha-ha, you know what I mean, and they're referring to some article that maybe you wrote or maybe it was just one of the commenters. They didn't understand that it was a commenter on your blog. It was not actually you writing that thing, mm-hmm. and it was like four years ago, and they just found it, and they assume that it's in the top of your head that you just wrote it you know, yesterday, and this is all you're thinking about. So you can't even decipher their email. Um, whew, then there's a whole category of, hey, you've got to check out my product of people that are just like, God, Oh, yeah, to check out my thing. If, yeah. if, Joel wrote, you know, if Joel wrote about our product, everybody would buy it and all our problems would be solved. And since I don't really write about products that much, and certainly not products that somebody wants me to write about, I guess I could. I could turn into a software review website where just people submit me the thing that they're working on and I could write about it and say, no chance, never going to work. Yeah, all this talk of email is just depressing me. Because, I mean, you don't really want to step on communication. It feels wrong to come out against communication. Right. Because communication is also the source of so many solutions to problems, right? I mean, in relationships, and work. Yeah. So to come out and say, you know what, there's too much communication, we've got to stamp out all this communication – Sort of goes against the grain. I think it's hard for I'm, people. I'm to willing to come out against it, and 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 I'm, I especially want to come out against the communication that is just friggin' noise. It's even more like I really feel like that's what Twitter is. It's just like more communication that's unlikely to ever. Well, let me give you an example. Okay, so Twitter works in in, in unexpected ways. I, I don't. I can't fully explain why I like Twitter so much. I'll just get that out there. But let me give you a concrete example. 
this weekend we watched the documentary Tilt, the Battle to Save Pinball, which is a great, great documentary about this. Uh, there's almost nobody making pinball anymore uh, in the U.S. And there's a little documentary about they had this last-ditch engineering effort to sort of come up with a next-generation pinball machine. Right. And they essentially succeeded at what they were – this very, very – ambitious goal that they thought was impossible uh but and not to spoil the movie it's kind of a foreground conclusion they were canceled anyway <laughs> so but anyway it's a great story it's a super neat engineering project wonderful movie it's called tilt the battle save pinball so i put in a twitter message about oh we, i finally watched tilt and it was really really good and then the guy who wrote tilt the guy who made tilt mm-hmm. replied to me it's a at coding horror hey thanks for the nice words regarding tilt i mean that's awesome, right? I mean, that's fantastic. So, it is? me broadcasting, I think so. I mean, I, ha- I just what a waste had a of time. Moment- Why is that a waste of time? It's a momentary connection between me and this, this guy who made this incredible thing that I really, really enjoyed. Why is that bad? How is that not a Oh, net- it's not bad. It just doesn't get what, 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 do, you, what do you gain from that? Not a well, now I have a connection with this guy. I mean, he responded to me. So. But you have the, the, most, the most fleeting. You already had a connection of him, with him. He made a movie and you watched it. And that's so much more substantial than now, like, he, he's auto-replied to your tweet. It's not like you can go over to his house and hang out with him. This is a handwritten Twitter response. <laughs> <laughs> you may not even want to go out to his house and no. hang out with him. Well, like I said, I can't fully quantify it. I've also gotten answers to my problems. I mean, Yeah, we get answers to our problems because we have so many followers. And that's yeah, cool. we cheat. Yeah, it's yeah. cheating. I know. We're cheating. Uh, but. Oh, maybe that's what it is. This is just going to be a way for celebrities to get it, get answers from there. Well, I would much rather have. Let me put it this way: I would much rather have somebody contact me on Twitter than email, without a doubt. Yeah, because you can ignore them, <laughs> or no, you can no, reply no, no. in 140 characters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, 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 exactly. It you you no longer have the wall of text. It, at the very least, a it's public, which mm-hmm. is nice, so it's searchable. At least in theory, although Twitter search has gotten really insane. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's a limited 140 characters, so you can only ask very focused questions. So already we're winning, right? Yeah. I mean, if all my email went to Twitter, I would be so much happier. But so. if I send you a Twitter, it doesn't get in your inbox where you have to reply to it or delete it or something. I, I don't have to reply to my email either. What, what's, I don't but you understand. would conscientiously. Uh, you, you still have to make a decision about it. I force you to make a decision about everything that I email you. With Twitter, well, I, the default I'm forced to, to make ignore. a decision about stuff you send me because we're business partners, That's right? True. Because if I don't respond to you, eventually you get pissed off, understandably so, <laughs> which actually has happened for the record. And then you start, you know, calling my house. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think there's different reasons. But I, this is, I, I think the most important thing to take away from this is I really believe if, if 90% of the email I got became Twitter messages, I would be... People would get better responses if they got responses at all, yeah. and my mental load would be reduced. So already that's a case for email as sort of a failed paradigm. I, I yeah, I sort of feel like commu- communication is the, is the real failed paradigm, that you need more communication of higher quality with a smaller number of people. Hmm. So there isn't a whole lot of like having lengthy conversations with people just to shoot the breeze anymore. We've kind of given up on that. And instead of that, or instead of you know hanging out at the pub and just sort of socializing with a limited number of people... Um, we now have these superficial relationships with zillions of people all over the internet. I don't know how to parse that. I don't either. Um, <laughs> That's a very dramatic, broad statement that I can't <laughs> reconcile. I feel like I have a much richer... I think you just got to change the medium. I think the Twitter-to-email comparison to me is the most salient point here. 
that you're trying to force communication into something that really scales. Email doesn't scale at all, like not even a little. <laughs> right, right. But how does and Twitter it, seems to scale so much better. I mean, I blogging sort of scales because many people can read something yeah. that you write. It's just public. That's right. right it's like right. public email. Sure. The trouble with Twitter, though, is that you get – as soon as a conversation threatens to become actually real, the 140K limit and the fact that you don't want to just sit there and tweet but all that's day good. long that's actually good, right? forces, forces you to stop. No, yeah. but then you're not having any kind of real conversation. So, for example, the only thing you'll ever find out about like – you, you can never find out in-depth information about a, a product on Twitter. You can just get people's opinions like I think it's great or I think it's awful. Well, well there's the whole – I actually blogged about this, but there's a theory of escalation. When you realize you've reached the limits of a particular sure. communication mechanism and yeah. you have to like escalate, you'd actually go to email. Like I've had people you know, have so, some Twitter conversations and I say, well, let's yeah. just take this to email. And they write this long email, which is relevant to me because we were having a conversation and I'm interested in the topic. It's not like the wall of text email. Mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. you know, right. on topic. Right, so right. I think you have to know when you've reached the limits. And if you don't, then bad things happen. I mean, you, it's always possible to screw up. Just like it's possible to write Fortran in any, any language, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's possible to abuse any communication mechanism, no matter how appropriate it may be. I think, you know what I haven't seen a lot of is Twitter spam, but you're going to start seeing it. I think there's been some. I think people are complaining about the, the spam followers. But right. I don't really follow. I mean, Well, people uh, will write at coding horror, and then they'll send you a spam message. Sometimes. But that's, that's been pretty rare so far. Um, oh, no. We're turning into this week in tech, just talking about Twitter all the time. Sorry. I know. Do you think... I have a different topic. Can, oh, we, yeah. can I actually change topics? Uh, sure. So on the last podcast, we talked about the Fogbug 7 API, and then we talked about plug-in ecosystems. Sure. And one of the things I always struggle with with plug-in ecosystems is, you know, how do you balance plugins with with development of the core product and richard Gaz, gadsden had a really nice response on the blog comments to this and he had four classes of plugins that won't get steamrollered you know where you're statu- mm-hmm. snatching nickels as you say from the path of the oncoming steamroller and i thought these were really good examples okay um so on to enumerate them Let's so one of, one of this one of the class of plugins that you could have that would actually be supportable is plugins that make the product ui very, very complex. And he has a good example here of like NoScript, mm. which is a plugin that sort of gives you browser safety at great cost, which is that <laughs> JavaScript doesn't work anymore. Right. Um, so for, for Firefox to include that as a default would be suicide, right? Oh, that whole JavaScript thing, we turn that off by default. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, that obviously doesn't scale. But for people that want that, they can run the NoScript plugin, and then that's a great example of a, sort of a complex plugin that could potentially break a whole bunch of crap on right, the internet. Right. But some people want that. That's a great example. Okay. And then a plugin that intrinsically costs money, like some kind of subscription to, say, Major League Baseball or something. Got it. So it's a plugin um, that, that actually uh, just it, it it's delivered as a plugin, but there's actually some underlying thing that costs money. Like maybe it's a maybe it's an interface to some piece of hardware that you would need to buy. Yeah, he gives an example of like a stock ticker or any sort of sort of real high value sure. data stream that you wouldn't normally bundle with the product, right? Not okay. everybody's into baseball, right. but there's all these sort of value add things you can buy in, on the baseball ecosystem if you're into that. Um, but, but you wouldn't bundle that, obviously. You're going to say, hey, here's your product, and now you get to pay $10. That makes sense. And actually, if you look on the App Store, a lot of the free apps that are really popular are exactly that. There's the Sonos free app for controlling your Sonos. There's the uh, uh, Amazon free app for buying things from Amazon. A lot of the apps that are actually free there are free beca- because they assume that you're going to be purchasing something in some other f- forum. And so it's just a, a complementary service. 
Right. Complement. So any sort of plugin where you're building a conduit for money to go from place to place. Mm -hmm. Another example is plugins that break the business model of the core product and the classic example of this is of course ad blocking i mean firefox is not going to ship with ad blocking chrome is not going to ship with ad blocking no browser is ever going to ship with ad blocking yeah uh that wants to survive in, in the market um and again a great example because the advertising although I, I support tasteful advertising and we try to do it tastefully on stack overflow so many sites completely fail to mm -hmm. do that so mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the final example is plugins that connect to a commercial product. An example actually using uh, Fogbugs is the Balsamic plugin. Right. So you have to buy that anyway. Or yeah. you're paying for that. Well, you're paying for that actually. So. Yeah, so Balsamic's business is selling Balsamic, not the plugin. Um, no, but we could, make, we could make a Balsamic-like product and just include it in Fogbugs. And the real reason we won't is because that's something only a small percent. We, we, that's the vertical case. We won't do that for vertical reasons. Like, it's too vertical for us. It's, too, it's something that only a small percentage of Fogbugs users might use. Right. So the only way, yeah, that's much too difficult of a large of a thing for you guys to right. consume. Now, so that, those, those were great examples of you there's, know, a, there's a fifth one, which is proprietary plugins that connect to some in-house thing that you just need to connect to. So somebody who's using Fogbugs that wants to integrate it with their uh, internal knowledge base or they want to integrate it with their internal build control system or something like that. They've got some kind of proprietary system that does builds all the time and they want to make it, you know, report bugs in the build into Fogbugs or something like that. So, so it could be a plugin that um, is so specific to one particular customer that they just need to build it for their sure. own needs. Yeah. But sometimes when we hear about these, we discover... Uh, uh, things where something should have been built in, even though, um, like I'll give you one example. Uh, let's say that you have a, um, uh, a bug report and you want to indicate what customer the bug report is for and the customer has an ID number. So you turn on this custom field customer and you call it customer number and you type in a number. And so now this appears in a custom field, but it's just a text field that just shows you the customer number. And what you really want is for that to be a hyperlink into your customer database. So when you click on that link, it takes you to the customer database, which may be some in-house product. So a lot of people are doing, these, are, are doing this in an ad hoc way. But if we made a plug-in or a feature to Fogbugs where you can make a custom field that, that we will display with any URL template around it, like we'll basically mm -hmm. convert, that, you will convert that number of the field into a hyperlink, and the hyperlink can be in any format you want, and we'll stick the number in wherever you have a, you know, a placeholder for it, a percent %s somewhere in there. Um, then in those cases, uh, you know, that's an example where like maybe there's a plugin that's perfect for you for your own internal use, but it suggests a feature in the product that would make that plugin obsolete. Exactly. Um, cool. Yeah. So the, the plugin model, I, I think obviously is a hugely important one. I mean, the products that have it tend to do so much better than the ones that don't. Certainly, a vibrant plug-in ecosystem is a very strong sign of health right. for um, any project. I mean, and I know I keep talking about a Stack Overflow API. It's just we have so many other things in the queue ahead of that. Sure. But I realize that it's very strategic for us to have a fleshed-out API, and it's something I absolutely want to get to. Now, the other thing about an API or a plug-in is it also creates a certain amount of lock-in, and, and this, this may be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you see it. But uh, the lock-in that it creates is that um, once you've implemented some kind of a p 
plugin API or, 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 or something. What you've really done is you've exposed a lot of little function endpoints that have very, very specific behavior. And somebody else is going to write code that's going to call these function endpoints that use this specific behavior. And if, if, if some, if, for somebody to displace you, if people are relying on these plugins, they need to uh, bring their plugins over. So for example, right now, um, almost everybody I know is not yet using Chrome because they're waiting for Adblock. <laughs> like they just need to be able to write a plugin for Chrome that can block ads. Uh, and as soon as that, or, and, 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 and that's the most popular plugin, but there are a lot of other smaller plugins that people are relying on in, in Firefox and they won't switch to Chrome or switch back to IE or certainly not Safari or Opera because those plugins aren't there on that, on that other platform. Oh, the lock-in, sure. That's a great yeah. example. So well. the classic example I'll give was the first thing in my career was that Lotus 1, 2, 3 had uh, Lotus macros. And Lotus macros, the way they worked is you went into a cell and you just entered a bunch of letters from your keyboard, you know, like slash C, M or whatever. And, uh, and then you could tell it to run that cell. And what it would do is actually generate those keystrokes that you had typed into that cell. Um, and so... Um, you could thus automate Lotus 1, 2, 3 in certain rudimentary ways. And people started writing these, and they got very, very sophisticated, and they had these very, very complicated spreadsheets that had lots and lots of crap in the cells um, that, that was macros that they depended upon to run their business. And when they were trying to convert to Excel, you know, all the data in the spreadsheet opened fine, and the actual calculations were fine, but for the longest time, we couldn't run those macros. And so people would not convert from Lotus to Excel. And so what, what, what the Excel team eventually had to do was build a, a complete emulator of Lotus 1.2.3 that emulated the complete Lotus 1.2.3 user interface. Um, so for a long time in Excel, it's not turned on now, but if you hit slash, a Lotus menu would pop up. Uh, and uh, it would have all the same things that Lotus 1.2.3 had in it. Um, and that's still there behind the scenes. Um, you just have to sort of enable it. And um, that took an enormous amount of work. So if you've got uh, a product and you make a plugin API, uh, or some kind of uh, add-in API of some sort or macro language. Uh, the burden then, and, and, and you actually get people to depend on these plugins, then anybody that wants to come displace you is going to have to reproduce all the behavior of your API perfectly, which can be very, very, very hard. In the case of Excel, it's never been done, right? There's a huge surface area to that API. Didn't Excel do that, what you're describing? Well, we, actually... we, we replaced the API of Lotus123. I see. Uh, with a slash commands, and that was really, I mean, Lotus 1.2.3 was a DOS app that was about 100K, right? So it wasn't, it was a lot of work, but it wasn't that much. But in the case of Excel, we're talking about an object model with, with you know, 500-odd objects, and the documentation for that thing is probably 1,000 pages, and every one, it's millions of little tiny functions that do tiny things in very, very specific ways. And you can try to emulate, you know, half that stuff, or three-quarters of that stuff, and you think, uh, well, I'm emulating the most important functions. And then some guy runs his plugin, and it runs fine for about, 0.00003 seconds, you know, and then it gets to mm -hmm. the one function that doesn't have a perfect emulation or that doesn't exist or that has a slightly different behavior, but just enough to make the plugin not work right. Now, that's, that's, that's a great point because that would be another thing that if people were trying to clone you, they would mm -hmm. have to clone that and mm -hmm. they'd have to clone it perfectly, like you said, because yeah. there's... And uh, probably the most compelling argument in favor of the whole API argument to me is that Essentially, you're outsourcing work. I mean, people are building things that make you look good right. with essentially no 
effort on your part. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, how yeah. can you really turn that down? That's such a great deal. Right, I mean, that's, right. It's like, hey, I love your thing so much. I'm going to build this thing that helps that makes your thing look even better. What it's would like, I? Well, yeah. You'd have to be an idiot on some level to turn that down. And I realize that, and I feel kind of, the more I talk about this, the more painful it gets, actually, because we just have other engineering stuff that's in the queue. Well, these things are hard to, to do. Uh, um, I mean, they're really hard to do. The, the, uh, I mean, well, the, some the of it is, but I took, think... Took, 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 you know, the better part of two years for a couple of developers. Yeah, but you have like a commercial product. I think for, for, for a site that's public on the internet, we can sort of dictate the terms. And I think our API can be kind of fluid, like for about six months. <laughs> and people are more willing to put up with... Yeah. Maybe uh, I mean you fluidity. Can't. I mean it's not a commercial product. See with Fogbook, your people are paying for it, so if it changes every point release, they would be really pissed off. Well, but, if you change yours every point release, then people that have developed plugins might it just might break a plugin, and they'll yeah. be maybe they're not interested in fixing it this time. So That's you're true. basically just sort of you still have you still have some obligation to try to keep it as constant. Some, as you but can. not but, as much. Well, let but. me ask you this, Jeff: What would you want plugins? What kind of plugins would you like to see for Stack Overflow? What kind of functionality would they have? What kind of things would they? Uh, I think probably the answer? big one that people cite and the one I agree with is they just want an iPhone app. Basically, they want a way to browse the site that's doesn't involve using. Although Mobile Safari is fantastic and actually uh -huh. browses Stack Overflow brilliantly. Yeah. Um, it's still pretty heavy because you're pulling down, you know, jQuery. You're pulling down just tons of things you don't really need on the iPhone to view a question, for example. Right. So I think that would be probably the number one goal would be to whatever API it, it takes to support building a reasonable iPhone app, at so, least for browsing the site, if not actually asking. One questions. thing you might want to do is just at least make some of the most popular views have an XML mode, and that's really kind of it. Basically, so basically, well, you put it. You put an argument. We don't really do XML. It's more JSON now. Oh yeah. But yeah. So you put an argument that says, "and give me this in JSON instead of in HTML," and you just put that on certain yeah. URLs. Oh, absolutely. And, and this you is just, you know uh, the whole model view controller. I mean, this is what it's all about. You have the database data, the fundamental unit of work, and you have different views that represent a question. And one of those views would be HTML. One would be JSON. Mm -hmm. So sure, I mean, this is what it's all about. I mean, this is the purest form of MVC as far as we're concerned. Okay. So something so we're going to get um, to. So, so for however hard that may be, think about if somebody wanted then to – this is something we may have to do on Stack Exchange. Uh, somebody wants to add some pretty deep new functionality to their Stack Exchange site Yeah. Uh, to make it specific to their needs. Uh, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a great example on the uh, airliners.net where you talk about airplanes and airliners and mostly commercial aviation. Uh, if you ever type a uh, two-letter airline code, uh, it becomes it, it it becomes a span with a title so that you can hover over it with a mouse uh, that tells you the name of the airline. And similarly, if you type a three-letter airport code, you can hover over it with a mouse and see what the name of the airport is. So it's something that, like you know, obviously no bold and board system comes with you know out the door. And it's really only relevant to somebody that wants to make the airliner website. And so they're going to want, want some plug-in capability that allows them to at least rewrite some HTML in this way. Sure. Um, and That's a good so, example. So, so that would be a, a typical example of something that I can imagine somebody like right out the door wanting. There was the, there, there's the other example. There's something those guys that made that design site. Remember, they wanted, they wanted the ability to push a blob of HTML through various browsers and get screenshots of what this HTML looks like in different browsers. Right. What am I talking about? What's that site called? Uh, Doctype. Oh, yeah. Um, so this is, uh, they, they didn't really want to just do 
plain stack overflow because uh, you know for for web designers they specifically wanted some features that allowed you to look at web design exactly no totally totally makes sense and it, and since these are supposed to be verticals anyway i mean the whole mm-hmm. concept of the stack is that you pick some topic that's fairly narrow mm-hmm. you know reasonably narrow that has some chance of succeeding so you're already talking about stuff that's going to need tools for a certain audience. Like right. we've built in tools for programmers. That was one of our big hesitations with scaling the engine out was that we had put in all this stuff to support our core audience. And as you move into, you know, yeah, people like who are code, into airlines, people who are into, I don't know, horses, people who are into woodworking. Woodworking. Have totally, yeah, I know. Crazy. Who would build a site for woodworking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So I have another topic for us. Actually, do you have any uh, questions? Audio well, you questions? know, we don't have any audio questions this week. Really? Okay, well then I'll go off on my little uh, topic then. Do. It's uh, Windows 7. I, I installed Windows 7. Wait, do you have the RTM version already? I have the final. How do you get the... Is that an MSTN thing? You can Magic. Get I just wave my hands and then just magically Okay, appears. I have a serious question for you, which I would have asked you, except that it was turning into a flame war on your discussion group there. On what? your comments in your blog. Um, I, I have Windows 7 RC installed. Am I going to be able to upgrade it to Windows no. 7 RTM? No. That's why, another reason. Why, I, why, 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 I don't why, know. why, I don't why, know. why, 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 why? That's why the, you should... What the effing... I, what the hell is wrong with you, Microsoft? It's some DLLs. You just copy over them. You have been patching this operating system since Windows 1.0, and now the only time you can't do a simple patch is to get you from Windows 7 RC, the candidate that was almost good enough to release. It was a candidate. Could have been the final version. Well, and to I, I believe that to the well, final now that you've not possible. reacted so violently to that, let me add some caveats, which is I believe that to be true the last time I looked. That is what I they said. Personally, I just don't get it. I don't get it. Why is it so friggin' hard? Because you know what this means is I have to reinstall everything. I have to start from a new computer and go find all my original CDs of everything and go find the stupid activation See, this is codes why for I all kinds of random RTM. products. This is why. This is exactly why. <laughs> Because I, I, I remember researching this and finding this out. I was like, okay, I'm not going to mess with these betas and RCs if I can't Jesus just roll Christ. over to the this is like This is like the one thing about Windows 7. This is like snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, I swear to God, is that you can't upgrade to it. Yeah, well, you're just bitter because you picked the wrong version. I, I'm, I have the RTM. I'm, I'm very happy. Well, you so. still had to reinstall from scratch. You couldn't upgrade from Vista. No, I, I upgraded from Vista, in fact. Oh, wait, you're telling me you can upgrade from Vista but not from the RC? Yes, I am telling you that. So they're punishing all the people that were beta testing for them? Basically. Apparently. Oh, oh God, that makes me so mad. It is unfortunate. It is unfortunate. It's like, you know what? That's like the Android phone. It's an awesome phone. It has all the features you ever want. The battery only lasts half an hour. <laughs> well, gosh, I think that's a showstopper because sometimes I might need to, need to make a phone call. <laughs> Yes. That is ridiculous. Oh. Yeah, it it is unfortunate. Particularly, I agree with you completely as far as the RC because I mean I can see for the betas because the betas are wild and crazy. Sure. But once you get to the RC status, it's so close. to Yeah, the they final. gave it to it millions seems, and millions of people. It does seem a little cruel. And all they friggin' to have to do is copy some friggin' DLLs that have changed into the new location and then reboot. Yes. Yeah. So uh consider yourselves warned about that aspect but somebody actually, somebody's got to come up with like a hack it's just like all right here install it in a fresh machine copy these dlls put them in this place set this registry setting and reboot and you'll be fine yes so if you remember in our first podcast we talked about the whole vista upgrade thing and the point you made which was you know totally valid was that there wasn't enough there 
to really justify an yeah. upgrade from XP, yeah. which, which I do belatedly agree with. My, my issue with XP is just I hate running really old, old, old operating systems. It really bothers me at a fundamental level. So for me, Vista was, it was good enough to move away from XP because it was modern. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did get a lot of things, I don't want to say wrong, but there's a lot of really rough edges in Vista that sort of made you scratch your head. And sure. I think my first reaction to, to Windows 7 was that they, this is where all the polish went. You know, like when you install it, it has a nice install experience. The upgrade was very smooth for me from Vista. Um, think little basic fundamental things like using Windows Explorer is faster, it's cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, all those little details that they seem to just forgot about in Vista, they actually remembered in Windows 7. And I within five minutes of using it, I was just, I was just so much happier. I was like, wow, yeah. this is really pleasant to use and in a way calc- that Vista was not. Bug and calc. Yeah. 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 Calculator is like revamped. Paint yep. is revamped. Uh, it, it's like they care now. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Vista was like the operating system that just kind of got rushed out the door. And, you know, although the kernel had a lot of improvements, it just, it had so many rough edges. And the, the example I like to use here is, is, have you ever watched any of those, those shows on uh, like home networks where they talk about selling your house? All the, the time. Process? Designed to sell. It's HGTV. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Flip they have this, this one show. Designed to sell, curb appeal. Yes. Yes. We used to watch those obsessively because we were actually huh. looking at selling our townhome in North Carolina. And one of the things that we learned from these shows, there was one in particular that we really liked where they would have cameras that they would put in. That mm-hmm. would actually watch the people as they went through the home, right. like you know, potential you potential buyers. buyers. Yeah, potential buyers would come through, and the cameras would record their reactions, and they would do it uh, first initially <laughs> just as is uh-huh. with the house exactly as the owners left it, <laughs> and then they would spend like literally one or two days with a budget of three hundred dollars, right, and just like fix the house up so it was looked good to sell. Yeah, and then they would record the after, you know, people coming through the very same house which has the same architecture, right? I mean, the house hasn't been rebuilt or anything. All they've basically done is rearrange all the crap in the house, get mm-hmm. rid of a lot of crap usually, slap some paint on the walls, buy like you know, $50 worth of you know, bonus items to put in the house to make it look good. Right. And it was always shocking to me how dramatic. Like People could not see past, you know, this is an ugly couch. Yep, yep. They would walk in a room and say, my God, that couch is hideous. You know, it forget takes, that this is the house that's like fifty thousand yeah. dollars. That's an incredibly good deal. Has this you know beautiful sure. yard. It's like that. The couch is hideous. I can't it's take maddening. it. It's And the reason they have such a low budget for fixing it up is because whatever stuff that they're spending on fixing it up is all going to get torn out by the new owners anyway. The first yes. thing they're going to do is they're going to come in and tear out all those new curtains and they're going to repaint the walls there the color they like. So Vista to me had that problem, uh-huh. which is. Architecturally, it had some really nice improvements over XP, but for most people, and this is defensible, I'm not arguing that you shouldn't do this. I'm just trying to explain the human sort of reaction to this, that Microsoft made a huge strategic error in not preparing their house to sell. They also didn't, yeah, and there's just no, there's no granite countertop, so to speak, which is one of the things that the the Apple does so well is that when a new version comes out, they give you built-in apps that just give you new functionality that can be demoed. Whereas yes. Vista versus XP was really just kind of a pushing things around and changing things and pestering you to type in your password more often. And uh, there, there, there was no, like, well, you know, we made some core functionality here easier or we've given you additional features that you can use. Like, 
perfect example. Somebody on Twitter replied because I was talking about, oh, Windows 7, great experience. And he asked, can you actually rearrange the taskbar buttons now? You know, drag and drop them and slide them. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you can. That's yeah. really cool, right? Like, Look, I, I never need to do that because I don't care. I'm not, I don't no, care about that No, because these are stuff. also your not running programs. You pin them to the taskbar like on the Mac. But you can rearrange really both running and not running. Yeah. You can rearrange everything. But it's so, now, that, now that it's also you're not running, you, you kind of want to keep them in, in, a, in a reasonable order. Yes. This is how you yes. launch things. It's just, it's very pleasant. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, every really good. I just found a search thing the other day that's much improved. And I, I keep like turning little corners and finding little details that are just nicely implemented mm-hmm. uh, in a way that on Vista it was like, you would just. One thing yeah. I think is a humongous mistake, and I may be wrong here, but I think it was a huge mistake in Windows 7, is the libraries. Libraries. You know libraries I don't know are? if I've used the libraries. Oh, I've okay, seen so the link. Run the little Explorer guy. It's the bottom left hand corner. Your bottom left hand link. Run the Explorer, dude. Oh yeah. Documents, and see documents music. music, pictures, videos. And what yes. a library is is this is this is I can only barely explain this to a programmer, but I'm never going to be able to explain this to my mom. But the, what happened <laughs> is that over time, people came to have music in various different folders and documents and pictures and videos in several different folders, and it was all very confusing. And a library is a kind of folder that shows you the contents of multiple other folders. It looks just like a regular uh, folder, except it's actually showing you the sum or the union folders. of what's in multiple folders. If you ever drop anything into a library, you may wonder, where does it go? Because it could go into any of them or all of them. What is it going to do? There is a specified folder that is the magical default folder for new things that are put into the library. And this whole thing is incredibly confusing, and it just makes you kind of wonder, like, your music is going to get even more disorganized, and it's even one less... Like for some reason, they made that particular part of the Windows experience already confusing enough. Uh, they made it even worse. Well, file systems, I think, are one of those things that just nobody really wants to, except for programmers. Nobody right. cares about the file system. They just want to put files. Have you, have you ever been to the average user's computer? It's like everything is on the desktop, uh-huh. which on one level seems insane. It's like, well, how can you find anything when you just have a bunch of crap on your desktop? But most users, A, don't work with that many files anyway, right? right? And B, yeah. to them, it's just one lump of stuff. Here, you know, try, it's, it's, try, try this just to amuse me. You got, you're sitting there at your, at your Windows 7 computer? Yes. All right, so go into Explorer. Yes. Uh, under Libraries, click on Music. Yeah. Do you have, like, sample music there? I do. Double-click on Sample Music. Yep. Okay, what's in your address bar right now? What does it say in your address bar? Libraries, Music, Sample Music. All right, now hit Alt-D. Yeah. Now what does it say in your address? It says C, users, public, music, sample music. Right, which is different, right? (laughs) So there's this backwards compatibility mode, which is that the address bar, they changed the address bar. I guess they they had this in Vista too, right? I skipped Vista. They changed the address bar so that the address bar now shows you... This is not new. ...chunky things. But when you hit Alt-D, it shows you the actual address. No, what is new is that it's not the address. The address, there, there used to be a one-to-one correspondence before the, between the file location and, uh-huh. and what it was showing you up there. Whereas right. now the actual file location, the path, can, it can be completely different. Right. Well, that, that's not really new because if you've oh, invested really? in Vista. Yeah, that's another thing, nice thing about Windows 7 is like the investment you made in Vista actually pays off because <laughs> it's enhanced versions of the things that were in Vista that were kind of clunky in Vista. So, uh, and just to, just to so emphasize... You're, you're getting paid off a little bit for all that suffering of using an, an inferior exactly. system. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and just to emphasize, uh, you, you mentioned uh, 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 Alt-D. Yeah. Don't forget the Control-E, just like in your browser, takes you to the search bar. That's right. one of the things I liked about Vista that we talked about on Podcast One was that everything had a search bar just like your browser. Uh-huh. And pressing Control-E will take you to it. And I just noticed they added something nice here 
I'm looking at sample music, and I can see add a search filter, album, artist, genre, length. That's mm-hmm. nice. That's better than that's new. So I mean, again, my point is that every time you turn a corner, there's something sort of nice in Windows Seven, whereas in when in Windows Vista, there was something unpleasant right. or confusing at every corner. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I'm a big fan, and I've already yeah. updated a number of machines here. So. My hope is that people will get off XP finally, uh, including maybe Fog Creek. Um, yeah, well, I would, except that if I'm going to have to reinstall this whole computer, I swear to God, I'm going to go on a rampage. Because <laughs> it's just like I've got I've got apps that I use here every day, like that I don't remember where the original media is, where the CD is, and I have to find it and reinstall it and retype all that and reactivate them, and then some of them will be like, "Oh, you've activated this app too many times. Please go to hell." Yeah, and it's just it's just infuriating. I have the system the way I want it. That's what upgrades are for. That's true. Well, now that we've said this so many times, maybe maybe um, Microsoft will come up with a solution, or they'll have some kind of service back. Or one can only hope. Yeah. Now, on a slightly different topic, I noticed that we almost got to a million page views uh, last week on Stack Overflow, which uh, surprised a million page views per day. Per day, yeah. It, it got up to like nine. I mean, it's definitely, it definitely goes up every week. And even yeah, actually, Server Fault has started leaping up. Yes, yeah, well. Server Fault is doing well. Server Fault is just a smaller, more focused audience. It's not, I don't think it's really going to be. Yeah. Oh, it's cool. just the nature of the beast there. Page I mean, views, uh, not, we're not, I don't think we're doing anything wrong. I think it's just a smaller, more focused community. Now, I also did some math. I was looking at the number of requests per second that were satisfying and actually went into Perfmon. And I turned on the counter. Mm-hmm. And this was in this morning when it was actually peak time. Like uh, basically, like eight to ten a.m. PST is like peak really? traffic. Yeah. Oh, big time. What the? It's just huh. the. I, I think it's like the middle of the day. It's like the sweet spot for all the time zones, at least in the U.S. Yeah. And uh, we're doing like 120 requests per second. Um. Yeah, which is. Wow. Uh, like 7,000 requests per minute. And I was actually looking at, I don't know if you saw, but 37 Signals posted a giant blog entry about them updating their hardware and stuff, and they're doing like 11,000 requests per second. Um, now, granted, this is apples and oranges, because we don't know what those requests are actually doing. It could be a request that says, give me every record in every database you have. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, give me a CSS file, right? right. It's not really apples to apples. Um, so it's a pretty broad metric, but you know we're doing all that on right now one server and one database server. Although I'm starting to get a little nervous about our web tier because I think we're going to have to move to multiple web servers and yeah. pay that cost of shared state, basically, <laughs> where we have to deal with not putting our shared state in some place that you know can't span web servers. Oh yeah 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 um, yeah we, we never we might we. we... I, I get we sort of lucked out with 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 fogbugs because I never really knew anything. I didn't understand that you could have set um, application level variables. So oh, you didn't I, <laughs> the original versions. Of, <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, you didn't know that. That's no, great. I just just like you know who needs it. <laughs> Throw it in the database. Yeah. Oh who, wow. Who needs the headache? And so uh, the first few versions of fogbugs, I just like I never relied on having anything hanging around. Wow. It so was you, sort you of everything. Yeah. If you have everything in the database, you're you're golden because yeah. Have to worry about that now. Grant, we only do it in a few places. We've we've we have had some discipline around this. Mm-hmm. We realize that eventually we're going to pay this cost, so we've sort of tiptoed around it. Like we know we're creating problems there, areas in our code. We try to isolate it in like shared methods and stuff. 
Um, but the reason I say that I that I'm a little bit worried is we are peaking at about about eighty percent CPU usage right now. No. Yeah, which is starting to get to a little bit of a worry zone for me um, because I don't want to get to ninety hundred percent. Well, the first thing you can do is you can move Stack Overflow and SuperUser onto a different machine. Well, they're, they're all on different machines already. No. Oh. Never yeah. mind. Every site is on its own machine, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's actually kind of a downside the way we have it set up because every... You have a meta s- Stack Overflow machine? Kind of, but that's like our utility machine. It's doing some other stuff. It's not just meta. Okay. It's also doing virtual machines and stuff like that. But every site that we expect to have a significant amount of traffic is on its own dedicated for CPU server. Now, these servers are not expensive. I mean, I, it's all documented on the blog. These are like $1,200 servers. Mm-hmm. I don't view that as a big investment. Um, but if we had some sort of scaling mechanism in place where we could easily run all four sites on all, say, four web tiers that we have, yeah, you could have some sort of load sharing, sure. right? Where exactly. Stack Overflow being having tons and tons of traffic would get the lion's share of the attention, and thus um, yeah. you'd have scaling. Yeah, you basically That's just, just not how we currently have it set up. So but it's just a matter of the of the shared state that they have in, in in memory. And what kind of shared state is that? It's state about the It's it's mostly authentication related. When we start to do authentication for the user, yeah. like say you've typed in a post and you click submit, well mm-hmm. you've also put in an open ID because we allow you to log in at the mm-hmm. same time as the post submission. Mm-hmm. So that kicks off like redirects to your open ID site and a bunch of other stuff. So we have to save that information somewhere. Now, we could put it in the database. Yeah, that's I'm totally, surprised it's not already in the database. We, we might as well, because honestly, that's like so rare. It's just not, there's no way that's going to be a performance problem for us. Right. Um, so we might actually end up doing that. That might be easier than anything else. Um, and then you, um, think, does that always happen on, is there like a common URL so you could have all the logging in happen on one machine, but the other requests can be satisfied from other machine, from, from the other three machines? Um. Repeat that. So basically you say this one machine is dedicated as a login machine. It's got a slightly different IP address or something or whatever. But the point is that based on looking at the URL, the, uh, the, the um, what do you call it, the load balancer says, oh, wait, mm-hmm. this is a, you're doing a login redirect thing here. I have to send you to machine A because it's got all the login state. Oh, right, sticky sessions. I think we would want sticky sessions regardless. I don't no, think wait, we would this have is a different thing than sticky sessions. It's different than sticky sessions. Okay. Sticky sessions says if 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 you came if if customer A in Chicago from IP address X first went to machine A, they will always go to machine A. Mm-hmm. And that's a different thing. Or if they first went to machine C, they would. And that allows you to take any session state, i.e., anything specific to the user, and keep it in memory and just know that you know that that they're always going to land on their same machine as they landed on 15 seconds ago. But oh, actually, that-, that would solve it for you, wouldn't it? That would solve it, but one thing I'm wondering is we have documented cases. We have some stuff we do that we actually validate IP addresses on. Uh-huh. And we've actually seen users who, whose IP addresses actually shift from request to request. Yeah, but the internet is broken ways. for those people. I know, I know, and it's supposedly legit, but the internet is broken for those people in so many Really? <laughs> why do you say, wait, wait, why do you say the internet is broken for those people? Because so many people rely on this concept of sticky sessions or class C affinity, as they sometimes call it, in the load balancers. There's so many really? sites that actually depend on that and assume that a given person on a given browser session is going to be coming from a given IP address. Oh. And if they, if, if those people, if their system administrators have put them in some kind of situation, I mean, AOL used to do this, but all the time, where basically every request is coming from a different random machine in some different random place. 
there are a surprising number of things that are not working about that per for that person on the internet. It, you know, a lot of people, a lot of web developers just sort of cache the IP address that something came from and, you know, use that to detect various things. We use it as a secondary protection against fraud in certain circumstances. Yeah. Uh, very, very narrow circumstances. But it did surprise us that there were not a lot of users. This isn't that common. Right. I mean, but it does happen, which surprised us. Yeah. I mean, and it'll be like a radically different IP. Because we actually allow it to be on the same subnet. We allow yeah, that. We, we allow you to stay on the same. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we're like, okay, that doesn't really, that's not a significant difference. But if you're on a totally different subnet, you might be a different user. The, and right. there are users that this does happen to. There's, a case, there, there's some cases I can think of. You've got an iPhone and you're using the AT&T data network because you're walking around the streets of New York and you walk into your air-conditioned office and it suddenly finds the Wi-Fi network and connects to oh, that and starts right. transmitting over that and it's got a different IP address. So that's, um, uh, that's like the Wi-Fi to public data. So there's the mobile users that that might happen to. But I remember, you know, what's kind of interesting is I remember when, when Boeing built their connection service to provide Wi-Fi on airplanes, which has mm -hmm. been shut down because they couldn't figure out how to make money doing it. But, they, you know, they put satellites up all over the world. It was a pretty elaborate and expensive failed project. And uh, uh, I do remember reading about the architecture of that, and they actually had gone to great efforts to make sure that even as your plane moved from satellite to satellite or from station to station, uh, that you still your 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 packets for for a given user um were still coming from the same IP address just cuz that's right. a slightly more better you know that gives you a better web experience than if that changes right. all the time so I, I've actually sidetracked you a little bit, and I apologize. So we were talking about sticky sessions. Well, okay, so sticky sessions is one way of doing this, but I was actually suggesting a different way of doing this, which is to have a login server, a designated login server, that keeps this particular state. And so whenever somebody's logging in, it's going to that server that has the shared state. And when they're doing any other operation, it can go to any other server. And it would be trivial to configure the load balancer to say, oh, look, there's a login request. I'm going to send you to that one particular machine that has all the session data. I think now that we've talked this through, our, our use of this shared state is so narrow that I think actually putting it in the database wouldn't hurt us, and probably we should have been doing that anyway. Now yeah, that I think not. about it. I think we just used session because it was convenient, right? Um, but there's not like a per request cost to this where we're checking that shared state. Um, now there is some stuff we're caching. I guess that's that's more of a deeper concern. So if you're running on three different servers. And you'll have three say, copies of the cache. I mean, if yeah, you you'll keep have popping three. up on a different one, yeah. Yeah, and this is where you get into that stuff that, uh, oh, gosh, what's the name of that? Oh, gosh. That shared state thing. It's called Velocity on the Microsoft side. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, don't Microsoft know Velocity. Uh -huh. But basically, it, it makes these servers act like a shared memory state oh. across these 10 servers that you have. They all have just, all 10 of them be like a giant hash table of memory. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you're basically pooling memory across these servers. No kidding. Yeah. It can't be uh, fast. See? Hold on. Microsoft Velocity. Well, yeah, there's a little bit of a cost. I just cannot remember the name of what this competes with. I'm sure that... Yeah, Scalable In-Memory Application Cache. Uh-huh. This it's is... still uh, in CTP, surprise. <laughs> We're Googling like crazy for our listeners here. <laughs> Is it Hadoop? Yes, thank you. Okay. Hadoop. And I think there's some other names, but that's, that's, that's a good search. <laughs> the Stack Overflow podcast. We do the research so you don't have to.
That's right. Really um, exhaustive and, and thorough uh, research in advance that we do before we suggest things. But, but the concern here is with our current naive caching system where the cache is per machine, it doesn't span machines. Right. Um, say you get shifted from server one to server two. Well, server one has a bunch of cached information about your queries. About and you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then server two is like, whoa, I don't know anything about you. So it has to pay the cost of putting all that stuff so back into. Well, yeah, you're that... duplicating. You're duplicating this information on multiple servers. So okay, kind of so then waste. you turn on the sticky server feature or the class C affinity or whatever. That's one way to solve it. And then you you'll get way more cache hits. And if somebody moves IP addresses, you know, darn, then they just don't get a cache hit. They have to go deep to the database. Yeah, yeah. That, that is true. It's actually not that common for someone to shift IP, so that right. could be a rational solution as well. Awesome. Yeah, that's what we're looking at. It's all based on you know solving the problems we have at the time we have them, and now we're starting to have the very beginning of the problem of we're outgrowing a single quad core eight gig server, right? Which is a you know one of those classic quote unquote good problems to have. You know, even then, if yeah. you put uh, what's what, what's their face is the Google friggin' spider on its own server. What do you mean? Give give the Google spider its own server to to serve. Oh, <laughs> right, because aren't isn't the Google spider like? 20% of our traffic. Uh, some, some, but we just have so much traffic now that it's, you know, it's just a lot of little requests from all over the world, right, literally. Right, right. It's, it's a long tail problem now. No, but I mean, I mean, there's probably four or five spiders that come from unique IPs or are easily identifiable that a load balancer could move those to a different machine uh, and at least not interfere with their regular customers. It could. I mean, once we have more than one server. We, we have plenty of servers in the data center, so let me just be clear that <laughs> we have spare servers we're waiting to bring online really? to do cool. exactly this. It's really just, this is really a software problem at this point. Yeah. Not a hardware problem. Some, some, someone was listening to us and thinking, God, those guys are such bad programmers and they didn't scale it, make it scalable to begin with. I would never do this. <laughs> and, and that person is an idiot. So if you were thinking this, you were an idiot. Wow, we're abusing our audience now. Is that where we are on the podcast? Well, just a, a small percentage of somebody, somebody out there is, is being very smug that they engineered something before it needed to scale. Like they, because you know what? When you oh, do I it see. that way, you may not actually have a startup. Your startup may not actually get off the ground. You may not actually have customers. And you put all that engineering effort into scaling that you never need. There are, I can tell you way more stories about little dinky two-person startups that built ginormous systems that would have been able to handle Twitter-like traffic. <laughs> <laughs> and never got more than a thousand hits a day. Yes. And that was on their launch day when they were in TechCrunch. Uh, there are far more stories of that than of people that fail to scale to meet the actual needs of their customers, which of which there is exactly one story, and it's Twitter, and it, it doesn't seem to really hurt them. No, but that's the story that everybody remembers, though. That's the one they always think of. It's the one that immediately comes to yeah. mind. Is and we'll actually, even eBay oh. had some some little stutters, but but you know what? It did, it didn't. It just didn't. Okay, yeah. So it sucked in the early days of Twitter because they were they had trouble scaling. Well, you're solving the the core problem, which is build a service that people give a damn about. Right. And then that's your real problem right. to solve, not you know because scaling. I mean, really, and I'll cite this thirty thirty seven signal story. Uh, is basically you just throw money at it. I mean, this is easy to solve. You can't really throw money at the Get people to give a crap about right. what you're doing. Exactly. Oh, well, that's I mean, you can. Not a problem it, that responds to money. <laughs> you can have, uh, yeah, you can have Super Bowl ads. I mean, people have tried to throw money at the nobody gives a crap problem. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a question of putting the problems in the right order. Absolutely. So yeah. So there. 
Anyway, these few listeners have now turned off the podcast in disgust and they're searching for the unsubscribe <laughs> They're off button. scaling their application. <laughs> Millions of users concurrently. I guess this is sort of a part of the you ain't going to need it philosophy. Like, don't do st- stuff that you haven't proven that you need yet. Well, you want to think about it some. I mean, you don't want to sure. go in totally blind and naive. That's dumb. Right. But uh, you want to think about it, but just the right amount. Right. And the right amount, obviously, is debatable, but... Don't, don't do know. something so that you would have to change every single line of code in order to scale beyond one machine. Like, in our, in our case, we knew this shared state was going to be an issue, so we right. kind of tiptoed around that area of the code. Yeah. Like, ooh, you know, here we have the shared state problem. Let's you know, compartmentalize this a little bit. Mm-hmm. We haven't fully solved the problem, but we've thought about it, you know, In some. advance, and you know that this is going to be a thing that you cross when you get to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the right way to go about it. Well, because it's the way we're doing it, so of course it must be the right way. Hey, we don't have any listener questions, but we should take a Stack Overflow question at least. Oh, yeah. Uh, Just to make this, uh, this has been fun, but do you have any, do you have any good ones? I think Uh, I might have had a good one somewhere. Well, I do, but it's kind of self-serving. How how about, how do I move the the turtle in? (laughs) No, actually, I got one. It's actually a server fault question, and it's a good one because it's something that we needed internally. Okay. So one thing we've done in a kind of ad hoc basis uh, is periodically check to see if people are hitting our particularly Stack Overflow inappropriately. Mm -hmm. You know, they're hitting it like a millions of times per second, or somebody actually pointed Apache Bench at us, which really pissed me off. (laughs) basically anomalous things that are happening to you on the HTTP request side. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. this really nice tool, Log Parser, that mm-hmm. Microsoft has had for a long, long time. It's kind of a generic tool that lets you take any sort of log and use a SQL-like syntax to get mm-hmm. data back out of it. Mm-hmm. And since I love SQL, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very natural way for me to work. It's just write these queries that I'm actually querying the IIS logs. I'm not querying a database. I'm querying a, a giant two gigabyte text file. Which it then um, has to scan the entire thing to... It does, but 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 it's actually really fast. It's written in C, and it's all optimized and stuff. And it does about as good a job as you could do without coming up with some crazy MapReduce cluster um, and solving it that way. Um, So then the challenge was coming up with queries that actually show us, well, what weird things are happening on your website? Mm -hmm. Like what statistically anomalous things Mm -hmm. are happening on your website? So I wrote a question: uh, recommended log parser queries for IIS monitoring. What's the number? it is 45516. And what I tried to do here was share with people, like I, I really had trouble coming up with these queries. I had trouble slicing and dicing the data in ways that made sense and actually showed me uh, what I needed to see. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to put the sort of information out into the world that I would have liked to have found myself when I had started this process. You know, this is the whole leaving the trail of bread cr- mm-hmm. crumbs argument. And this is really one of the reasons I started all these sites is I just want to share useful information with people so that they can, you know, share even more useful information with me later. Right. I I want people to improve these queries. Right. So some of the queries, let me give you some examples of some of the things that we find. Some of the more basic things. Favicon is using all our, uh, it's the highest, most bandwidth used by by URL. So I guess that doesn't Yeah. So you break down like what URLs are the most requested on your website. Now Mm. for us, this isn't a huge surprise. Um, Then also like, uh, how much bandwidth is being used by each one of those URLs? Right. How many times are these URLs being hit? And these are different queries because sometimes you'll find files that are really small that get hit a lot. Oh, yeah, don't you, can really see this, this, you can see Googlebot going crazy, but what's Omgillibot? 
Umglybot is like a forum indexer. Oh. I think it tries to bring like forums as first-class citizens into search results wow. with mixed results. It's actually kind of a neat service. It's umglybot.com. I'll go ahead and link that in the show notes. It's kind of a and then yeah. Uh, it can be. It depends. The, the challenge with search engines is, is sometimes they hit you a lot, the spiders. Yeah. And for some of these, like, fifth and sixth tier search engines, right? <laughs> it's, it's not even worth the cost of the bandwidth that they're hitting you with. Right. I mean, you don't want to be a jerk and say you can't index us, but it, it's kind of a weird cost balance there. Right. Now, moving down in these queries, the bottom three are really the interesting ones when it comes to users who have done something that they shouldn't have or accidentally set up their RSS reader to pull you every 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, we're breaking it down by IP and user agent. Mm-hmm. Now, user agent is that little string that's sent to your website every time a request is made. Right. It's, the t- it's supposed to say what kind of browser you Right. And when you don't have that string, that's yeah. actually kind of a negative sign. Like sure. if we have you know, 10,000 hits from something that has no user agent... I'm really likely to block that. Because yeah, that's really weird. What the hell? Who doesn't have a user agent? Well, I know. It's, it's some kind of crazy bot. Because even bots usually fill in the user agent with something useful. Yeah, like they use Curl. Yeah, or just wget. Yeah. Get, or whatever it's called. Like somebody hits you like 5,000 times with wget. Yeah. The other pet peeve I have, and some of these queries will show this, is I show the average... Uh, size of the, the response that goes back to the browser. Hmm. A lot of the more poorly written bots don't use gzip compression, which is like a total pet peeve of mine, Mm -hmm. that it's pulling down the raw HTML, which is like five times larger than the compressed version. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's one thing to hit us like Googlebot and all the well-written bots use compression. Mm -hmm. So every time they hit you, they're pulling down the compressed version, save your bandwidth, you know, everybody's happy. But then you have some crappily written bot hit you like 10,000 times, and they'll pull down hundreds and hundreds of megabytes worth of bandwidth from you. Um. Which I, I have a huge problem with. Yeah. So again, I'm really likely to block you. Uh, and when I say you, I mean the IPs that these things are happening on. If you show up hitting us more than Google, using more bandwidth than Google, and realize that Google uses tons of bandwidth from us. Google is spidering us incredibly aggressively. Uh-huh. Almost, Which we kind of real, want. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like real time. Yeah. I mean, I've, people say, wow, how did you do this? How, did, how does you know, Stack Overflow show up like within 10 minutes of me posting a question? It's in Google. And that's really Google is doing that. I mean, they're they just have a really kick-ass, you know, bra- you know, spidering infrastructure. They know that where a site is really popular, and they have their spiders, you know, set to do this. And they do it in a smart way. They don't they don't spider us abusively. I had to actually block Yahoo because Yahoo totally spiders abusively. Mm-hmm. Like they don't respect limits. <laughs> yeah, they'll make like ten requests per second. <laughs> what is is Yahoo using? Uh, what used to be Inktomi's search engine? I don't know what it is, but talking about it just pisses me off. Because Yahoo, number one, they don't give us any traffic hardly at all. Right. And their well, spider they're, they're, has to be... <laughs> their spider's not working so well. Oh, it's terrible. And you know who, you know who on Twitter, actually, uh, Marco Arment of Tumblr, yeah. was actually commiserating with me and saying, yeah, I had to block Yahoo, too, because we had all these problems about Yahoo just spidering like very, very abusively. There's, there's all this art to writing a spider. Sure. Like if, you're, if you write a spider and you hit a site and you see that the site is slowing down as you hit it, Right, you throttle down. Yeah, and yeah, that stuff is that, that stuff. I mean, they're very simple algorithms for that. You basically measure the clock time to get a response. But and if then you, you look at you these wait queries, that long before you you hit them again. If you look at these queries I've built, you'll find that so many bots are not that well written. I mean, they don't 
do it I in think a small way. It's one of the big ones that they'd be doing better. Oh, they're they're bad. They're really bad. They're totally abusive. Bad Yahoo. Yeah. No so that was one of the reasons that I came up with these queries was to identify we had these huge spikes. And there's another question I had on server fault about that. Um, but these queries are great. Now we have a, a scheduled task that runs these. I wrote a little console app that shells out to log parser and runs all these. And it sends us this nice HTML email identifying, you know, sort of the top end of all these queries. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Good question. Um, well, we're mostly out of time. I have, a, I have a request of our listeners, if you're listening to this show. Um, we wanna, we're trying to organize these Stack Overflow dev days. And um, I've, I found a, a lot of good speakers on a lot of topics. But what I really want is some Python speakers, people to do a Python tutorial in each of the 10 cities. And I don't have any Python speakers lined up at all. And I don't really know who the good Python teachers and Python tutors are. So if you've ever gotten a Python tutorial in person and you've heard somebody speaking on Python who you thought was absolutely brilliant and, and, and fun to listen to and taught you a lot in an hour, which is what we want to happen at the Stack Overflow Dev Days. Um, could you please tell me uh, who they are and what their name is and even where they live? And uh, um, do that by emailing that to devdays at stackoverflow.com, which is our standard Dev Days address for any kind of Dev Days question about Dev Days. We still have a few seats left also for the Developer Days if you want to come to the conference in a few cities. Most of the cities are sold out, but I think we still have uh, Los Angeles, Austin, Cambridge, England, Amsterdam, and maybe Boston a little bit. So um, in those five cities, I'm pretty sure we still have a few seats, but please hurry up because we're just about to sell out the whole thing, and then it'll be over. Over, I tell you. If you have any questions for me and Jeff, it's something you want us to talk about, uh, or if you have any feedback on uh, this podcast or any previous podcasts, please record a uh, MP3 file or Ogvorbis. Um, and email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com, or you can call the podcast hotline at 646-826-3879. We really want uh, to hear your questions and to uh, engage our so-called audience. Um, there's a uh, show notes for this podcast. will go up on the Stack Overflow blog located at blog.stackoverflow.com, where you'll also find a link to the transcript page, a wiki, and we really need your help. Um, if you can volunteer for just a minute or two of your time to take some tiny part of this podcast and type it into that wiki there, um, which is linked to from blog.stackoflow.com for the benefit of the hearing impaired and the search engines uh, who can then index uh, the contents of this podcast and all that kind of stuff. That would be greatly appreciated. That's all I got. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.